Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. My guest for this episode is Kristen Ager, a therapist and interventionist for mental illness and addiction in Little Rock. We're talking addiction and how family members can deal with the situation. You'll get to meet her right after this. I love a good home project, don't you? I think that's what we all learned during the pandemic. And then we got to be experts and we needed a place to shop. Well, I've got a guy and an entire family here in Little Rock, Arkansas, who can help you. And the folks at Akel's Carpet One Floor and Home can help you with more than the project. They can help you with the math. They can help you with saving money and they can help you with the design. I know that because I'm a customer. I'm working with them right now on a project. Can't wait to get a backsplash for my kitchen. And it's the small, it's Dow Tile is the name of the manufacturer. And they're stainless steel, real contemporary looking. Uh, Courtney Akel, Erica Akel, Richard Akel, all the Akels are working on this project for me. And that's what I love about shopping there. You'll feel the same way when you go. You get a free estimate. You can go to AkelsCarpet1.com and uh, go ahead and communicate with them. And then, you know, they'll beat the big box store prices. Booyah. No one else does that. You'll love their customer service. AkelsCarpet1.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. Okay, I've brought in the big guns for this one. Kristen Egger, you are our big gun when we're talking about addiction, mental illness, all the things. Because um, for one thing, Kristen, you and I can admit, those are things that we need to all have on our radar because we're affected by both mental illness and addiction, no matter who we are, correct? Most families are. That's correct, Lisa. And in doing that, there is a delicate way to approach these things. There's a head in the sand way to approach these things. And let's talk about, this is the one group of people, Kristen, who don't really get the attention because in addiction, the addict gets all the attention. Well, who wants all the attention? The addict. Yeah. Right? Right. So do you notice that the paradigm we have now in addiction is all, oh, let's make him happy. What can we do? How can we accommodate? But you know who gets crapped on? Family members. Family Co-workers. You are absolutely what right. can let, Let's address that. Let's address the people who are left in the wake of addiction. And we're talking about caretakers, spouses, children. How mm-hmm. can we pay friends? How can we pay homage to them? What can we do to build them up? What, what do you do to help the family members when they're facing this? Because they've had it rough. Well, they go through this with a loved one or an employee, um, and they are sober, and they can't unsee what they've seen. It's as traumatic, if not more, for family members who are scared, angry, disillusioned, thinking if they could just hang on to the person that they'll be okay. And ultimately, everybody gets so sick that trying to find your way out of it is very, very difficult. And so in my work with families, I am stressing 
you know, you all need to get help too, because if nothing changes, nothing changes. And what that means is you can send your loved one off to treatment, but if you all don't get some help to heal the whole family system, you're going to see it happen all over again. And you're really the family is the best ally. Families are resilient, even with these difficulties. And that's the best ally to help someone. Initially, they're so distraught when I'm meeting with them. It's about being gentle. It's about educating them about addiction. That it's not that people weren't raised properly or that they uh, don't care anymore. It's when the drugs get in the system and the brain says, ah, this works for me to escape, feel better, then you're smart brain kind of goes offline and they start doing things that prompt family members to say, I am living with a stranger. Who are you? And they then try to help the uh, addict or alcoholic. And in the meanwhile, they are getting more distraught, depressed, anxious, and sometimes there are other issues that go on like in within the family. Sometimes somebody else in the family is an, an addict or alcoholic. Sometimes there's mental illness. There could be trauma from a fire, a loss. And then if there's a family history of uh, addiction uh, or mental illness, that can come into play. And so the, the challenges are things like being in denial, not my brother, not my kid. And the devastation of then hearing, maybe it is your kid, and maybe so. It you're is saying even we, these people are living with the addict, and they're still not recognizing that's addiction, or well, and I'm using that term for both addiction, alcoholism. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Sometimes, oh no, uh, that's not really happening. Or you would see them put their hand up and say, no, 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 not in our family. And it sometimes is very subtle. There are things that we teach families about addiction, that it's not somebody's fault. We don't blame other people for it. What we want to do is reintroduce the resilience and strength and hope of a family and remove the whole concept of shame, blame, and guilt. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Okay. Kristen, is it the inclination of everyone, though, is our first offense enabling? Or does anybody on their first offense say, you drink too much, go get help? Sometimes. Sometimes they'll say, I can tell you're drunk. You've been drunk. We found all these bottles. We're sending you to get some help. And one is typically crying and another family member may be screaming and yelling Mm -hmm. or they're just flat shell shock and scared, you know, and in this day and age, Lisa, we have to really take a look at what happens with drugs and people are much more aware now. And we have um, in Arkansas and all over the world, serious, serious problems, not just with opioids, but with marijuana and uh, other drugs and also alcohol. And so we have to look at the fact that some people try one of these drugs and they can be one and done and on a ventilator and dead. And so 
Wow. Waiting, you don't want to wait around. Um, there's a, uh, a form of THC called DABS, and I've had a number of patients who have uh, gotten psychotic using that concentrated form of THC. And some have come out of it and some have not. So we hear more about opioids but um, and overdoses with that, but it can happen um, with other substances. And, you know, go back to alcohol, the oldest drug known to man, you know. So looking at what can happen or I hear it's not that bad or we called you uh, because 10 people called us or we finally realized we got a serious problem. Can you meet with me right now? In fact, I'm going to meet with one family tomorrow morning at 10, another family at 12, and uh, I'm going to do another uh, family session at two. All three of them have and, addiction. And, and with that goes depression, anxiety. Oh, fear. totally. Right. Totally. Yeah. Do, yeah. But of the families you're meeting with, the people, you're talking to the addict and the family members? Or um, in does the addict come on? The addict and uh, parents. In another case, it's going to be uh, a husband and wife. The husband's the... Wow. Uh, person with the problem, the wife is not. Um, and the third one, I'll be meeting with um, a family via Zoom uh, to do an intervention on their loved one on Monday, Sunday. How, how do you do that? I mean, how, where, where, where do you start in an intervention? I mean, do people come in like the TV show shows us that they come well, in and there's a, yeah. then, then the person knows the jig is up? Exactly. So the old way that was initially done was to come in, tell the person kind of everything you've ever done bad, even though the motive is to get them help. Um, and um, once we get you, we're going to get you there and maybe they do it in the middle of the night um, or everybody's in there. They haven't been prepared and they're screaming and yelling. So mm -hmm. the way I do it, I use a model mostly uh, called love. First, written by Deborah and Jeff J. I'm also trained in the Arise um, intervention uh, model. And the okay. thing that I like the most is when you hear the words love first, it is not tough love, it is love first. So a family calls me, we then they decide they want to go forward, and we build a team. And each person is sent certain documents to fill out, like everything they know about the person we're going to be meeting with. Um, and then. Oh, who who wants all their secret share? Sheesh. Well, that's, you know, that's what keeps addiction going. Don't tell anybody. Oh, my God. Yeah, right. By the way, it's very different with young people versus middle age. Uh, and older because the dynamics are different. The way I do an intervention with somebody who's 80 is not the same as a young adult who's going to want to get in my face. So I do a two to four hour training and prep with the team. And then the next day we go in and meet with the person. The people, by the time we finish our training, they will know where they're going to sit who is going to speak first and last, and all that has already been decided. And then I've had them write letters. One's a love letter. I love you so much, and I don't want to see you die. 
And you give a couple examples of behaviors, but more than anything, it's about, I understand now this is a medical problem. Please accept our help. We want you to go now. And each person does that. Um, And if the person interrupts, I ask them to please wait and let us uh, finish reading their letters. And then it's the basic ask of, so your family's all saying they want you to go get help. They've done their homework. They've already um, found a place and we want you to go now. And some people go, okay, why, what took you so long? <laughs> and then other people, oh, yeah. So Kristen, some people are compliant at that point. I think of it as combative. We don't want combative. But if you're, right. Oh, I know. But they get so defensive. Well, and so one way to prevent that is to appoint a spokesperson for the whole family so that um, everybody's not talking at once, that it is low key, that you do, you're watching me for what to do. How do you get the person there, though? Because they know it depends. He's, Sometimes he's going to walk the plank. Right. So it doesn't always happen like that, though, Lisa. Sometimes uh, we decide to do um, a a rehearsed intervention where they don't know about it. And sometimes we do invitational and all depends on the person and that situation. But in an invitational, um, somebody from the family would say, Johnny, we are really concerned about you and we have Uh, a meeting set up on Saturday with a lady who works with families in trouble with addiction. And we want you to be there with us 11 o'clock at Sue's house. And then they, they say, well, I'm not going to do that. And the family says, well, what we want you to know is we're going to meet anyway with the expert to figure out what we should do and we'd love for you to be there. And many times people do not like other people talking about them when they're not there. I've had some people standing at the door. Um, more often than not, though, I do a rehearsed intervention where we know everything about the person, treatment centers chosen, all of that. And then we, uh, they can wake up and come in the kitchen and there we are. Or we uh, wake them up and say, come in the living room. They see a room full of people. And it's sort of like what we saw in the movie, The Hangover. Yeah, yeah. Remember that? And he's mother, smooth, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, I like to meet with families before it reaches this stage and to say we're really concerned and this is what we want to do to prevent another loss in our family. And it's right. Um, is the person often impaired who comes to the meeting, though? Sometimes, yes, probably. We have to take a look at how that's a really good question. How impaired are they? Are they going to, you know, say, OK, or we're saying we're going and are they going to wake up four hours later and go, what the you know what? Um, mm-hmm. That has happened. Um, we know that if we don't do something, the person's going to die. So. We don't want to. Is that a threat to them? Like their mortality? Does is that an impetus to get somebody to get help? We don't. I didn't think so. I I do have them say in their letters, "I love you, and I don't want you to die," because we don't know when uh, the next 
problem. I had somebody call me with a fentanyl overdose um, not very long ago. Fortunately, the EMTs got to the young lady um, and now she's in a treatment center. We don't, threats don't work. You know, the whole, the old way of like the TV show sometimes, well, if you don't go, we're taking your dog to the pound. Never, never. And if somebody says no, when I have the family, tell the person what your bottom line is. I will no longer give you money. I will no longer, you cannot use my car. Does that help? um, Yeah, that you, you do not threaten anything you won't actually do. And that's what's critically important. And you you want this to be honest and respectful. And you, you give examples. And some people say, hell no, I'm not going. And then I tell the family just to hold still. And I may take the person out, walk around for a minute or say, hold on. Uh, and I will have figured out who are the two closest people to this person during our prep. And I, if the person gets up and leaves, I have those two people go with the person, not to put hands on, but just to say, hey, wait a minute, we're just trying to talk. So there are lots of different scenes. Um, sometimes somebody will run out the door and I have been in uh, minus five degree weather walking down the street with somebody for two hours. Because I'm not going. Well, eventually he did. But so, we, Kristen, you I'm should work for the FBI as a negotiator. I mean, <laughs> that you I do. do so you're, do you? Because it's a gift what you have. It makes my tummy tight to think um, you're involved in this conflict. Because in part of it is, uh, I have, I mean, a wonderful husband, family now. But I was raised in addiction. And then raised in addiction some more and mental illness. So I remember these conversations. I remember drunk people and yelling and screaming and passed out. And my mother. Yeah. yeah, Yes. 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 So I I remember living. It's conflict all the time. And so you talking about it almost triggers it for me. And then you're you're so easy in the way you talk about it. Well, it's important to be calm when you're talking to people. Now, occasionally somebody blows up. That happens too. And, you know, we just, we manage it. I often have a transporter with me and that person's ready to go. Nobody touches me. And that that's the person who's going to take the person to treatment, get them safely and comfortably. And I work with a, a company that, you know, they already know what the young person's favorite artist is, music, movies, and they've already loaded it all on an iPad for them. Wow. wow. So, you know, in before we knew a whole lot about how the brain is affected, you know, we now know that the, the brains of anybody else who's in the household are also altered kids. Really? But that once that is taken care of, they are back to more normal. And we didn't used so to have the, the brain. Well, it's the body keeps the score philosophy of yes. does the brain does bounce back? Yes. 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 That's Love a fascinating trauma. book. I mean, write that down. That, that book is amazing. It is. And, you know, trauma stored in the right side. And so we fortunately have um, treatments like EMDR now, which is um, an amazing therapy that, uh, helps rebalance your brain and be able to uh, uh, not be so triggered because you're going to have an automatic response to a, if you've been reared in this, 
to a sound, a smell. Uh, oh, you trigger anything. Door, sure. Anything. Sure. And you, you wonder why all your life, your shoulders are up, you know, way around uh-huh. your neck. Yeah. So what we uh, want to do is. Yeah. Yeah. What we want to do. No, I'm just is, thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what that's like. Mm-hmm, or I'll mm-hmm. see somebody and their whole body tenses up. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be doing some breathing exercises with them and saying, we're here just to talk and try to figure out what's the best thing to do. And obviously they love and care about you and nobody wants to yell and holler. We just want to see you get the help you need so you can function as who you really are. So, now you've walked the path of sobriety, right? Is that part of your story uh, or do you tell yes. that? Uh, it's perfectly fine to tell that. Yes, I've been... Uh, clean and sober for 32 plus years. That's true. Wow. I've been a therapist longer than that. Is that right? So does anything ever woo you in a way that you think I'm going to have to have a drink? Not now. No. Um, There are certain things that I was taught to do to prevent that. And I do follow um, what's been recommended. Um, People ask about what are the support systems? Well, for families, Al-Anon, 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 and there are great meetings anywhere in any city by Googling Al-Anon, and that is the sister program to Alcoholics Anonymous, which is for the person with the problem, and then the family has its own uh, program, so they can heal too, and that's what we're really looking at, and for everybody, we want to enable recovery, not the disease. And there are all kinds of things, smart recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, refuge recovery, a church. There are all kinds of things. There's not one perfect path. And some people need to be in a treatment center because it is so um, ingrained after years and years that um, you have to have them go and get detoxed. And some people have safely legal. Yes. We yeah. do not ever, ever recommend detoxing yourself at home. That is dangerous. And we say absolutely not. Do not do that. You know, give me a call. I'll tell you where you can go or take a loved one um, to have that happen safely and carefully. We don't want people to suffer. You know, we don't want people tied down to beds and, you know, hallucinating. We want to get them help and do it in a respectful, safe way. Yeah. And a a few years ago. Go ahead. Uh A few years ago, a friend of mine um, told me I hadn't seen him in a while. And he said, well, um, you don't know, but my my wife, our mutual friend, said um, she just got back from treatment for alcoholism. And I, I said, oh, gosh, like this, I... I had no idea. And my friend stopped me. He goes, stop right there. He goes, don't you remember she had an eating disorder? And I went, yeah. And he said, same obsessive compulsive behavior. He said, she then used alcohol. You remember when Kitty Dukakis drank the Sterno? This was back in the 80s. It was 40 years ago. But that's about what his wife had done. She was so desperate for something. And once he explained that to me, is there a biological connection with a, any type of addictive behavior and an eating disorder falling under that compulsive well, behavior? Yeah, it's the, the the compulsive part and its behaviors with 
the mindset and you know it's like an obsession of the body and in the mind i must have this eating disorders can be very very uh complex and that's one of my specialties i often also see uh people who have both addiction uh with alcohol or drugs and an eating disorder and depending on the severity of the eating disorder that determines what level of care and uh, where's the best place. And so the so, eating disorder probably is is the most important or the more important of the two factors. Is, if it is active and rampant, you, oh. we have to uh, use a center that is well known and treats both problems. Because in a um, an alcohol and drug center with no experience with an eating disorder patient, you. They don't know what to do. And it's sort of like playing whack-a-mole. You know, one thing. Right. Right. Something else pops up. But I think the most important thing is there is help and help for families and for patients. Both. But it seems like, and it may be because I knew young girls, the young girls I knew who went to uh, eating disorder clinics only did it to appease people, but still walked the track. 500 laps, still would only sip this much water. I mean, it, uh, you can lead a horse to water, Kristen, but you can't make him drink. So is and it, I mean, it may be nothing to you. You might think, oh, we treat eating disorders all the time. We see success. But is it a tough one? It is a tough one. And we see success. Good. And um, that's important to hear. That's a whole lot of the work that I do. And I'm a certified eating disorder specialist and several other things. Um, it's different. We have to eat. We can sustain we ourselves without alcohol right. and drugs. And some people right. um, have what's called binge eating disorder, which is um, excessive eating. Some people have anorexia. That's probably the most well-known um, eating disorder uh, category where there's starvation and there's also a category or uh, one diagnosis of uh, bulimia. And that is where uh, somebody compensates for overeating by uh, exercise, four hours on the treadmill, uh, vomiting, laxatives. There are a lot of different ways Um and it's a very serious psychiatric disorder. Anorexia actually has the highest uh, mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder. Yeah, I can so see that. Now, are the family members, though, the same? Do they fall into the lines of the same roles that someone who lives with an alcoholic? The yes. same type of enabling? The ta- yes. Okay. Yeah. So uh, some of the groups uh, for recovering uh, families, and I say families because the whole family has to recover, um, are feast and through National Eating Disorder Association. And when I see patients in my practice, I'm giving them this magazine that has all these resources, and some are for kids, teens, adults, family members, friends to help them because sometimes this gets so out of hand. Um, that we end up having to uh, use the treatment center called Denver Acute. And that is when somebody is too sick even for a treatment center. Life-threatening, 
you know, and I get a lot of calls around and the country. What do you do? It's like they, you feed them through IVs and just something well, to get nourishment somebody, in them? I get calls about um, all over the country to do an intervention where the uh, person is maybe 5'10 and weighs 73 pounds. And that's a medical and, emergency. And truly, that person looks in the mirror and thinks that's acceptable? That person sees sometimes what's not really there that yeah. um that they look overweight but it's not real and is there a connection with eating disorders and sexual abuse i'd heard that years ago don't you know, know. I, i've never substantiated it uh trauma of any kind can lead to that um okay sometimes there is sexual abuse uh sometimes not that is not a hundred percent across the board uh, unfortunately, back in the old days, they would always blame the mother, which is so unfair. There are biological factors, social factors, um, and uh, environmental factors. So, you know, it can be a lot of things. You could be 13 years old and somebody says, hey, you're putting on a little weight. Some innocent. And that triggers it. Mm -hmm. That's it. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. And um, some people uh, have what's called, it's a newer category, severe and enduring anorexia nervosa. That means they've had it for five to 10 years in and out of a hospital. Um, and, and so those, those people are suffering long-term and, you know, there is treatment available for all of these um, eating disorder categories. Um, unfortunately, treatment's expensive. And we really look at where can we have somebody go to get the help that they need. And that's part of knowing who does good work and how do we figure out a way to utilize resources to get the person the help they need. And also, uh, I give every family a book called Surviving an Eating Disorder, Strategies for Family and Friends, because they're, they don't know what to do either. Um, now, I am thinking of the rich white kid in, you know, the expensive neighborhood with the eating disorder. Does it affect the poor? And it, does Medicaid even cover uh, eating disorder or alcohol treatment? Um, Medicaid does cover um, detox. And there are okay. some centers that do take Medicaid. Um, and for eating disorder patients um, in some states. It will pay for treatment. Um, and if Arkansas does not have an eating disorder treatment center anymore, we have outpatient therapists and we have outpatient dietitians, but there is no intensive outpatient. There is no residential. There is no acute care other than like Children's Hospital that will admit for uh, acute stabilization, low heart rate. But we don't have right. a center here. Um, so we send people out of state. I've been a lot of time working to get a center here, and some of it's a licensure issue because three treatment groups have said, yes, we'd love to come to Arkansas, and that's what we need and want. And there's um, an organization that a few of us started called the Eating Disorder Coalition of Arkansas, and you can get online and you can see what our mission is, research, education support. Um, and we, um, those of us who started this are 
really, uh, we're all well, very well trained. We want other practitioners who don't know about eating disorders because it is more complicated. Um, we want them to have good resources. And then we, when we have the crossover, somebody who has bulimia and purging type or anorexia purging type, meaning the bulimia part or restricting type, um, it's pretty phenomenal what some people will do to say ingest alcohol, but not get the calories. Mm. And so they're mm. wasted. Um, wow. I never that. even thought of that. Yeah, I can see that. Okay. Anything we talk about, Kristen, just for our listeners to know that I'm putting all this in the show notes, everything from love first to rise intervention, all the things we're talking about. So uh, somebody right now listening has a teenage daughter who they, they suspect an eating disorder, like runs after a meal, runs to the bathroom, you know, or is losing whole lot of weight. What's the first thing that parent or sibling or friend does? Because that's a different age group. Not always, I know. I've heard that in the nursing home now, women have eating disorders. So I understand well, it's all older age groups. adults with eating disorders is its own um, category. So I, the oldest person I've treated is 82. Um, yeah, long term. Had, had they had it forever? He, she, time, I yeah. guess she... She, no, sometimes he, and that's a really important okay. um, factor okay. in, in males. It's typically underreported um, because there's more, you know, that stigma of you're not supposed to do that. But we see it. We see anorexia in males. We see um, uh, bulimia. I think of jockeys first. And then we see um, oh, yeah. uh, everything in between, you know, gender nonconforming. Um, the uh, uh, gender, it doesn't really matter these days. And to answer your question about socioeconomic factors, no, it is no longer only, quote, rich, white, young mm -hmm. girls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the population. Uh, so the 82-year-old, the, the did he or she come in willingly or against yes. his or her will? Okay, willingly. Willingly. Yes. At 82, finally thought, you know what? I got to I got to do something about this. We're seeing a lot of middle aged women now who are, you know, starting to uh, mature more and seeing a lot of eating disorders starting up because of so many all these commercials about take this, do that. And you'll look like Cindy Crawford mm -hmm. or you'll look mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. back in the 50s, Marilyn Monroe. But Marilyn right. Monroe wore a size. 12 or 14. 12, I know. They are and she was curvy. Now that you wear a zero, and that flat mm -hmm. is not going to happen with, with people. So there's. But this do you illusion. think some people are just wired? Because, like, none of that motivates me to be anything. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I, do you think some brains are more vulnerable to that messaging? Well, again, we look at um, genetics. If there's a history of addiction or eating disorders, sometimes I'm treating uh, a parent and uh, their child, teenage or wow. old. Wow. Yeah. And that they so, see it in mom and they start doing it or dad. Or and like in my case, the reason I've stayed so far from addiction, I saw it in mom and dad and then the yep. other people around me and then the next family who raised me, I saw it there. So it made me stay away. You know how it repulses some and attracts others. Well, there's and that I don't, biological I, factor. 
where people say, yeah, I don't. Well, I just don't want to say that pridefully, like I am, I am beyond that. No, it just, none of that. You don't have the wiring for it. I don't. I don't. And what's crazy (laughs) is I saw, I met, I have a biological half sister in Manhattan and I met her finally 10 years ago. We didn't even know about really about each other. We vaguely knew, but with the same dad, he had an affair and had my mother, her mother had her a year before I was born and we were a year apart and we both, we looked alike, we sounded alike, but we looked at each other and both said, so do you drink? And we both went, I mean, I can have a glass of wine, but I don't take it. I don't care. It doesn't and so trigger your brain. Mm-mm. You but again, I, 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 right. I, oh, I don't want to. I mean, I, I just well, don't, no. I don't have an inclination. And there are a lot of people who say, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic or mm-hmm. um, addicted home. And then by golly, if I don't care what I am when I grow up, that's the only thing I don't want to be. And then lo and behold, they have the chemistry where yeah. they drink. Or they uh, ingest a drug and it makes them feel better, takes them to la-la land. Yeah, yeah. Taking benzos. And then pretty soon that starts running your life. Yeah. And it's it's about, you know, I have people who tell me, um, you know, when I drink, I sometimes say I'm I'm only going to have two like everybody else. But some sort of chemical explosion occurs up there once it crosses the blood-brain barrier. And it triggers the craving. And yeah. that yeah. won't go away. And now we have medications that help con- control or eliminate um, the cravings. But it's, you know, you can see four siblings and two have an alcohol, drug, eating disorder, or process addiction going. What? Shopping, gambling, oh. gaming. Okay. I have a lot of people that I work with, they are addicted uh, to gaming and uh, it's, you know, they game 20 hours a day. Like that. Wow. Um, That's the all or nothing mentality. I remember a friend who lost 90 pounds in 90 days because she had a weight problem. And then a few years later, she was in alcohol rehab. She said, everything I do is all or nothing. Like she knew that about herself. That's she that's said. Right. I can't do things. I I can't do it half baked. I'm either going to do no all of it, right, or I'm going to do none of it. Right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Is that is no every brain. addictive brain? Do you feel like? Well, I mean, when you have that obsession and it starts happening, you can oftentimes have a one track mind, and you try to right. stave it off and wait, but. You, you know, in recovery, you're given tools to help you um, to be able to manage any kind of feelings like that so that you aren't driven to go back over and over again. Honestly, though, you know, some people keep relapsing uh, with alcohol, drugs, eating disorders, relapse, relapse. And some, sadly, some people die. And, um, you know, with alcohol and drugs, uh, the stats um, kind of speak for themselves. Mm. Um, and to to answer or address the question about people with eating disorders, when people come in my office and say, well, they've told me I'm going to have to just deal with it the rest of my life, I just go crazy internally because that is not true. You know, 
I know tons oh, and tons. Oh, that's of people good to hear. Recovery, and the, um, we have a, here a, a NIDA National Eating Disorder Association. We do a walk every year to here in Little Rock uh, and all over the country to promote recovery. And there are sections in the websites of all of these places that um, are for parents, siblings. You got to have a dietitian. You got to have a a whole team that works with people. Hmm. Okay. Well, back to family members. So there's a family member listening right now who can't get that person to any type of facility. The person won't do it. What does that person do? How does that person manage? When you I mean, how do you deal with life? I mean, the anger you would have because you feel like you are messing up my life, but yeah. I love you. And both are true. You know, both of yeah. those statements are yeah. true. Yeah. You can try a lot of different things, um, uh, like um, saying, will you go to counseling? Um, or you can go all the way up to having a family meeting and not getting anywhere to hiring a professional to come in and do an intervention, which is basically a family meeting and is not designed to point fingers. So <clears throat> when um, when you reach that point, whoever's listening, um, yeah, you can call somebody who's uh, an interventionist. You need to be extremely careful about who you would use and vet their services and make sure they're certified uh, and have the experience. Um, Deborah and Jeff Jay, who wrote the book, It Takes a Family, and also Love First, on their website, there is a set of 38 videos that um, instruct people on how to do uh, an intervention where you're intervening on the dangerous behavior um, without wow. a professional. And that, you know, okay, sometimes good. people do that and it works great. And then sometimes that is, that is, that's good. we get called. Uh, yeah. Do you ever tell someone, Kristen, to walk, leave, leave the home, ab not abandon your loved one, but for your own safety and peace of mind, leave? I think that's a that's a, a good question, because what people don't want to have to do is, as, as many have said to me, I don't want to put my my husband, my wife, my kid, my mom on the street. Oh, yeah. I know. You know, that's that tough love. And there are times when people have done everything that they can and they feel like it's killing us, you know, and we're going to ask you to go somewhere else. We'll take you to Salvation Army. We'll take you and try to and get you in treatment. But you can't be here. Uh, sometimes it's just so dangerous. You know, if you're a parent and you got little kids, um, you can't leave these little children with someone who's impaired or you've just had it. The person's relapsed 50 times. You've gone through it a hundred times. And some uh. people do reach the stage where they say, I love you and you can't live here anymore. And but what about some, the healthy person? Does the healthy person, do you ever tell them, you know what? I give you permission to leave your husband to not abandon your children, obviously, but no, to, that happens. That happens all the time. That people say, "I okay. can't do this anymore. I, yeah. I, I can't live like this. Somebody's got to leave." 
Yeah. Right. Somebody's got to leave. And, you know, that's again where I would hope that people would reach out for some counseling and some help on how to navigate some of these things Mm. that are so difficult. You're full of anger, fear, bewilderment, and not knowing what to do. But there are resources. Al-Anon, there are all kinds of things that are smart recovery that can help. And uh, there is a a program called Celebrate Recovery. And that is the churches have Mm -hmm. for patients and families or loved ones and family members. And it is geared more toward the Christian Mm -hmm. um, uh, population. And if that works for you, go there. You know, AA is more of a God as you understand he, she, it. Um, and then some people really need to go to like smart recovery, which is all cognitive behavioral, no, um, no, um, uh, religious or spiritual component. And of course, um, Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual program, not religion. It is about whatever God is for you, but yeah, celebrate recovery. There are programs for people. Anybody who needs help with that, you're welcome to call me and I'll be happy to guide you okay. toward Good. what's available in your community. Yeah. We, now, yeah, when, because with, with my personal family, I know there was a lot of mental illness involved. When is mental illness addressed, first or last? Well, you can't do a whole lot about the mental illness if somebody's high. So you have to get the... Okay. Uh, the person off of uh, whatever they're using and then be able to treat the other well, in the in my field called co-occurring disorders, anxiety, depression, PTSD, all kinds of things that are, are uh, mental illness um, entwined with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, can you imagine, well, you know, your own, spouse who's so um, into the alcohol that even though that person loves you and they do love you, but the alcohol has lured them that way. And there are many, many divorces or people who go to treatment Mm -hmm. to get the help. We want to restore the family and have healing for everybody. And, you know, sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. But I always want people to have a chance at recovery for everyone involved um, with them so that uh, people can get better, you know, not end up, you know, dying alone somewhere. Mm. We don't want to see mm. that happen. And we Did we more- see more numbers uh, during of addiction during COVID? Did you see oh, more cases goodness. of... Mm. Yes. the um, um, Most of the therapists I know... Um, have a much higher caseload. We have all had to take on more to be able to um, help the people who are either relapsing or the depression, anxiety, Mm. you know, uh, fear of going out now, but the fear of getting it, the anxiety and depression with that. And you couple that with a, a substance use problem, lots more uh, relapses. Um, uh, in various uh, uh, forms of addiction. Um, Yeah, it's been brutal. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. I love what you said, Kristen, about restoring the family. I think if anyone listening right now who's thinking that they're battling, he or she is battling um, any type of addiction, to know that there are people like you who want to restore mm -hmm. their families and want to give them help. I think that's the most hope you can give somebody. And I love that. And for them to know that there are resources available to help them. So. And I've got them written down right here. You did a great job, Kristen. Thank you so much. Thank you for helping families. Thank you for loving families and being forthright with them. And there is no boogeyman to you. You, you face it all. Like nothing scares you. Nope, I'm going in there. <laughs> I'm going in there safely, you know, making yeah. sure of that. But yeah, I want to see people heal. Yeah, absolutely. I love Don't that. need to suffer like that. So. I love that. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com.